the canine condition. Come, sit, stay. Welcome to the Canine Condition Podcast. My name is Jacqueline Pignol. I am an actor, documentary filmmaker, and animal rescue advocate. The Canine Condition Podcast is a platform to bring awareness to dog adoption and to provide all dog lovers and pet owners with information and resources on how to raise a healthy and well-balanced dog. If you are thinking about getting your first dog or just want to know where and how you can help a dog in need, this is also a place for you. I am very excited about this episode. I have a very special guest with me from the Kramer Foundation, a nonprofit dog rescue organization located in Schmunk County in upstate New York. The Kramer Foundation is dedicated to fostering, rehabilitating, and rehoming dogs from shelters. Many of these dogs would otherwise be euthanized in those shelters for behavior or health issues. The organization volunteers also foster saved puppy litters until they are old enough and ready for adoption. The programs at the Kramer Foundation include fostering dogs for soldiers who are deployed with no place to leave their furry friends fostering dogs for returning veterans while they seek any necessary treatment for mental or physical rehabilitation. They foster dogs for domestic violence victims until they can be placed in a safe home that will accept their dog. The foundation provides certified search and rescue dogs for lost and missing persons, cadaver and crime scene dogs, as well as therapy dogs for educational programs, counseling agencies, schools, libraries, and any place needing a fuzzy shoulder to cry on or a warm body to comfort a wounded heart. All programs are strictly volunteer-based with no cost to participants and no salaries are drawn by anybody else. Now that is quite a resume. My guest today is Miss Julie Lathrop, founder and the boots on the ground of the Kramer Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Hi, Jackie. It's nice to be here. Good to see you again. Good to see you. We are seeing each other virtually, but hey, it's nice that that can happen. And here we are. Let's talk dog. I want to thank you, first of all, for everything you and your volunteers do and have done for so many amazing homeless dogs. I follow you on social media. I stay up to date with what's happening with the Kramer Foundation. And by the way, for our listeners who don't know, Kramer was a Rottweiler and he was the reason you began the foundation. Julie, you have run a very successful nonprofit foundation for how many years now? And what brought you to the level of expertise in dog behavior evaluation and training that you now have? Well, we actually started in the schools back in 1999 when I had Kramer, um, and we ended up pairing with the SPCA to help kids and dogs rehabilitate behaviors together, so to speak. And it kind of grew to a point where we became a not-for-profit, probably the end of 2002 into beginning of 2003, um, because the expenses for the programs and the dogs that we were now fostering was greater than my salary. So somebody kind of talked me into doing the not-for-profit, and we've just kind of grown from there. Um, the expertise, I, I guess I don't know what how to define expertise, Um I don't have the fancy ABCs that you get at the end of your, you know, certificates that you get for however training that you do. Um, it's it's kind of the school of hard knocks, but it's just by having thousands of dogs of different breeds, different drives, different mindsets, um, and 
having the opportunity to train with some really great trainers and and learn a, a combination really of different varieties so that we could touch um no matter what kind of dog came in there we were able to flex what we had and i've learned really to listen to them how they want to learn and what they want to do okay you do provide these search and rescue dogs and therapy dogs and cadaver dogs for uh police enforcement agencies so from my perspective, I'm thinking you have this level of knowledge and experience that allows you to prepare these dogs for such a thing. How did that come about? That came about by having so many different diverse dogs that needed things to do. Uh, we found dogs in shelters that were there because of what they were bred for. Um, breed specifics that made them get lost in their mind, get lost in their nose, have to have jobs um, that were being trained kind of a one system fits all and it didn't fit them. So as I looked for stuff to do, I started reaching out to different trainers and different options. I looked at the successes that people had. Um, the Southern Tier Police Canines has been an absolute goldmine for us because they're so diverse in their training and they bring in people from all over the country with different uh, mindsets, different training techniques. And so we've been able to flex that into our certifications that we do are through the International Police Work Dogs Association, which I think has the highest standard of um, a lot of the certification programs. Um, and it's, it's known everywhere. So it gives us a chance to say that even though these are rescue dogs, they're meeting the standards of some of our highest paid for and trained dogs. So we sought out wow, where the successes were and where we thought that we would be challenged the most and the dogs could meet their biggest potential. Okay. And that brings up a point I've noticed through social media posts in the rescue world that a lot of times the Belgian Malinois, who are these majestic, beautiful dogs, uh, usually had been bred in past decades to be police work dogs, but now people are getting them as family pets or, you know, they want just a cute, beautiful puppy and the Belgian Malinois is so beautiful. And when they're about a year old, you see a lot of them need to rehome, need to rehome or in shelters. Is that where your organization would step in and save these dogs? And why do you think that's happening so much now? It's happening because um, actually what they see of these dogs is usually on a movie screen um, or in a video or something where somebody has not realized the extensive training the dogs have gone through to get to that point. They just see these wonderful, obedient, you know, well-behaved, absolute protectors and garters and perfect house dogs. And they don't realize the literally thousands of hours that go into training and boy, they are cute puppies. They are cute, cute puppies. And I can tell you that, um, in the last couple of months, I've had people reach out that have had eight and 10 week old puppies and they're already over them. Um, they don't call them malligators for nothing. Uh, <laughs> they are, they are, they are all teeth and, and energy. So a year old is usually, usually between eight months and a year is when they end up at the shelters because that's their tolerance that the, the families are just done with it. Now they've, they usually reach out and say, we've done absolutely everything we can. Uh, no, otherwise the dog would be a successful member somewhere. Um, and then they get dumped at the shelters and then all of that energy has nowhere to go and it turns into aggressions and then they get euthanized. 
I'm glad to hear you explain a little bit more of that for any listeners who love these breeds. You know, I love the breed, but I would never get a Belgian Malinois because I can see it is a lot of daily work. There are certain breeds that are working dog breeds. So unless you're able to provide that level of exercise and daily attention, would you say it's better to maybe not get a puppy if you have two kids or other dogs or you know, I'm just trying to get listeners to understand how to find their match, not just what their eyes see and like. Absolutely. And it's that spur of the moment thing that they fall in love with the puppy and uh, the looks of it and have to take it home. I tell everybody when they reach out to me, before you say this, I want you to research totally the breed that you're asking me to find for you. Um, and it's actually most dogs are in shelters or dropped off or euthanized because of stuff that is their character. That's what they're bred for. Um, if I hear one more person say, I got it because he's a stubborn dog. And I can guarantee you almost every time it's a beagle or a hound or a hound mix that's lost in their nose. They really don't want to flip you off. They're lost in their nose. That's what they're bred for. So if you don't want a dog that gets lost in their nose and and, and you become nothing really to them because they're more about the scent that they're following, don't get a beagle. Don't get a hound, you know, research your breeds before you make a decision to bring a puppy home. That is a very good message. Can you think of or share a story with us about a dog who had a miraculous save from a shelter or one where both the human and the dog were saved and changed for the better? Oh, boy, there's so many of them. Honestly, in in the position that we're in because of the dogs that we get in, almost every one of ours can fall under that category. Um, but some of the standouts are a little shepherd that came into our local shelter. And literally I got a call from the dog control officer and the assistant on different phones at the same time that said, we have a dog for you. And I said, where is he? And he said, on the other side of the, my desk, trying to eat me. Um, and, uh, sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but so <laughs> I, I'm picturing this scenario and I'm thinking this call is not a good call. Yeah. And when they came to, he'd just been a chained out dog, you know, who had no socialization and just turned into a nuisance in the neighborhood. And so, um, the people brought him in to relinquish him. And, uh, he, he came in there going after the dog control officer. And when he told the guy, just throw me the leash. So he threw him the leash and the dog instantly turned and started going after what was the owner. Um, so he clearly had no indication of what he was here for. Um, and to make a very long story short, um, this dog just passed recently in his new owner's home, but he left the Kramer Foundation, a certified therapy dog, already started tracking um, obedience and scent work. And he went on to be a titled um, AKC, titled obedience, rally, tracking, and she did her own therapy dog certification herself. And the best thing was that his entire life, one of the, the criteria she had is that the dog had to love to be hugged and um, he could hug. And so Samuel P. ended up just an absolute star um, it, with his new owner who understood the breed and understood him and turned him literally it, from a junkyard dog into an absolute fabulous, just stunning performance dog because she tapped into what he was bred for. Oh, that's that's fantastic to hear that there is the potential to 
turn around a dog's behavior and entire life and give it opportunity if you know how to read the signs and work with them, which is what I've seen you do so beautifully. Let me take you back in our documentary series interview. You said something to me that I wanted you to to expand on for our podcast listeners. In regards to the programs that you led in the middle schools in Shimon County Sheriff's Department, you said there wasn't anything that Kramer said that the kids would forget. Why was that a good thing? Well, there's several things about that is the the messages fall on deaf ears a lot of times when we say it. You know, kids are kids just the same way we are. If a parent tells us something, we have a tendency to kind of blow it off. Um, if a if a teacher tells us something, we have a tendency to um, you know, take it in, but we listen to our peers more um, and, and they have more influence our age group. But there's just something about a dog and how they touch a soul. Um, many of the dogs that we had in these programs shared a lot of the same stories that our kids were going through. The abandonment, the abuse, the feelings of not fitting in, the bullying, the the just absolute, um, I can't talk, I can't say anything, I can't do. So the dogs were something that they could relate to um, and there just was such a connection with the dogs that we will never get as humans. That'll never happen. We just, it's a depth that we will never be able to reach. And so when they taught a lesson, they could repeat years later, Kramer said, and, uh, it, that, that would be in there for whatever reason. We can't explain it. It just is a thing. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, they had that program dare. Yes. You know, say no to drugs. And there were cartoon characters associated with some of the lessons right. that they taught you. And those were the, either the phrases or the things you would remember as a kid. So tell us, what was it about Kramer and so many of the other dogs you chose to put through the program that, that made the program successful? The biggest thing about Kramer was he was a Rottweiler. And so as a society, there were so many preconceived notions about what the breed was, um, what they did, what they stood for. And so in a, in a day and age where we want people to judge somebody by their actions and by their accomplishments rather than by what they look like or what you've heard, Kramer was a perfect specimen for that. Um, and so were his 11 children that followed in his footsteps and, uh, continued with the programs. But the breed itself is a perfect example of how something can be bashed and somebody has an absolute knowledge, I'm putting that in quotes, um, of what an animal is like that turns out to be the total opposite. So in picking these breeds that have these um, stigmas to them, we were able to show kids exactly how to get to know somebody and how to look at what they've accomplished and look at who they are rather than listen to what you see in the newspaper or you hear on the news or or a blanket statement about a certain breed. You can't say every dog of this breed because it's this is this way and every dog because of its breed is this way. It, it's an absolute you have to get to know them. You have to get to know them. You have to train them. You have to do what you're supposed to do on your end. But um, Kramer was successful mostly because of that in the character education that he was able to instill. And in the dog working programs, I know that there have to be breeders who look for specific bloodlines and, and behaviors and traits. So these dogs can be the result of a qualified candidate, right, for training. But also you yes. said, you know, Kramer Foundation started 20 plus years ago. 
it might have been okay to have more breeding then. But given the overpopulation of homeless dogs today, um, what do you think, based on your experience, why do communities have such an influx of homeless and abandoned or wanted dogs these days? The majority of it I can bring down to two words, spay and neuter. Um, so the lack of that and the, the acknowledgement, I do believe there have to be good breeders because of just that. You have to have specific traits for specific things. However, comma, I don't believe that the overpopulation is uh, really uh, based on one thing uh, uh, other than the fact that fixing your dog will go a long way. But people get these dogs and you get the ones who say, I just want one puppy out of her because we love her so much. And so they'll breed a dog um, to get that one puppy with no concern what happens to the other 11 that came in the litter. Um, People get dogs and then they move and now they aren't allowed to have that pit bull in their new apartment or they're tired of the pit bull or the pit bull got pregnant and they dump it now because, you know, they can't get rid of it. We literally answered a call one time where there was a sign on the door for pit bulls. They were two days old and they were giving them away. Oh, my gosh. Two days old. And people were getting them because they figured a bottle-fed puppy would be more inclined to be really close to them then. So the biggest overpopulation in homeless comes from the overbreeding and the not fixing, but it's it's emphasized or, or increased now because clearly the situation of people losing their housing, people not being able to... Um, get in places, breed specific bands in different places. So when you do move with that perfectly wonderful little pit bull or shepherd or Doberman, you're not allowed in the next place with it. Yes, I have seen that a lot, actually. And we're going to cover those topics specifically in other episodes. So having spoken about that, why do you think it's so hard to convince some people that adopting a homeless dog is better than buying a puppy from a breeder or a pet store. Because they they advertise, and now these little designer breeds, they call them. When we were kids, they were mutts. Straight up, they're mutts. Now mutts are designer breeds, and they're getting $2,200, $2,600, and it's become a status symbol um, to have it. Then we also have a mindset that people think, well, I know that they're puppy mills that supply these stores, but I figure that if I... If I buy one, then that'll at least save one dog. It doesn't save one dog. It makes a market. And I can't get them to understand that that puppy that's for adoption in the SPCA were the ones that couldn't sell in the store. So if if, if you adopt from there and stop the market at the stores, you're going to stop the spread of the puppy mill. I had mentioned that in a previous episode, wondering what happens to the dog's that pet stores don't sell or that breeders have and are imperfect. And I have heard they get passed on to rescues or shelters, don't they? They do if you're lucky. There are many who just take them out in the backfield and shoot them. Wow. So if you're lucky, they get passed off to a rescue or end up in a shelter with with some kind of chance. But uh, the overpopulation in the shelters tells us that you know, the likely chance of them being euthanized is pretty high as well. Yes. I, I would like our listeners to get more informed on finding the breed they want, puppy or not, at a shelter or a rescue because they're available and you can do just as much work to adopt and save a dog that is a perfect match for you 
as the amount of work you do to find a breeder or a puppy store and buy it from there. Absolutely. And a lot of these, there are rescues that are specific breed rescues. So there are, there are breeders who will, when they're done breeding with their dogs, will contact a rescue and say, you know, come and take this dog. Do you have a home for it? Um, yeah. So they don't live out their lives, you know, after giving of them for all of these years. Um, but then there's a part of me that says I would rather they do that because a breed specific rescue usually has a list of people waiting for that specific breed. They're already approved homes um, and they know how to deal with that breed. Um, so I like the rescue part of it because in, in a good rescue, you're likely to find a better match the first time and you don't have a return, return, return. That is a good piece of advice there for anyone looking to find a breed-specific dog. They are out there. You just have to look. They sure are. So let me take you to Cody. <laughs> oh, Cody. <laughs> he hit the jackpot. Right? Since you and I met, we've we've collaborated in saving, I don't know, at least half a dozen dogs together. And I want to bring attention to the story of Cody. I want to let our listeners know where that hashtag, it takes a village, comes into play in the rescue world. After having traveled through the South filming my documentary, I befriended many rescue volunteers, one of which was a sweet lady named Elizabeth. She contacted me one day and said there was this dog on a chain that was tied so high up on the fence he couldn't sit down. This was during the time that Hurricane Michael swept through Georgia. He survived the hurricane tied to this fence. She could no longer stand to see this go on, and she cautiously knocked on the homeowner's door one day. She offered to buy the dog from them, and they literally said, you can take him for $20. When she reached out to me for help homing him, I went to Georgia. I met him. He's an incredibly friendly and loving dog. And I remember messaging you, Julie, and saying, help. Are you interested in helping this beautiful, I thought he was a Rhodesian Ridgeback mix, and you said yes. You had room at the time, and he came to you. I will let you take it from there. And actually, I didn't have room at the time, but I couldn't tell Jacqueline no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, guilt trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, Cody came just an absolute, I've always said for years that you can change a dog's behaviors, you can't change their heart. And it was instantly recognizable that he had a heart of gold. Um, he really, really wanted to be a good guy. He just had no social skills and absolutely no obedience whatsoever. Um, but his zest for life left him what would be considered unadoptable in many places because of his jumping, leaping, knocking things over, just crazy out of control behaviors. And it became very apparent very quickly that this guy was a special dog. Actually, he was in training to be one of my program dogs. My program dogs are aging out. I only have, actually at this point right now, two left in my therapy dog group, and they're 12 and 13 years old. So I've been on the look for a long time for some nice program dogs to work with the kids and, you know, be certified therapy dogs. And he was online for it. However, coming up to a fundraiser we were doing, we had a uh, news interview, and I took him to the station and one of my longtime friends who had just lost her shepherd that she had adopted years before, as she had lost her husband, she was a cancer survivor and just really going through a tough time. And she texted me and said, who is that magnificent dog and is he available? 
And Cody had eyes that just the most soulful eyes. And they just, oh, I remember. Oh boy, they reached right into your heart. So she came that weekend and met him. And I still was torn at the time. Do I let him go? Because he's an absolute in for program dog. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that's what he was going to be. And it was apparent. She walked in. He saw her, uh, leaned in and smushed his head right into her chest. And they had a moment together. And I knew. Um, So Cody is right now living the good life. She actually paid to drive through our Christmas lights. There's a mile, mile long Uh, Christmas light display and Cody loves to see Christmas lights. So she pays to have him drive through so he can look at all the Christmas lights. He is an absolute doll living the life. That warms my heart so much. And those are the stories that I live for because I know there are so many dogs to rescue. Obviously, we would prefer that there not be. But since there are and we're on this mission, when I hear those stories, that's what keeps me going. And it keeps me looking for more people like you, Julie, who are willing to take a chance, an educated chance on saying, I can help this dog and we will find it the right home. I wanted to mention something real quick. So you were talking about the Christmas lights and everything. Has the current COVID-19 crisis caused more problems for your organization's mission? Have you had to make some some changes and shifts in how things are done? Or has it brought more adopters and opportunity for people to adopt dogs from you? It's affected us in kind of a little bit different way than you'd expect. Um, We work with other rescues here and there. A lot of times a rescue will reach out to us and say, hey, listen, I think, you know, I've got this dog in and I think it's got potential, but it's not going to go anywhere with us. We can't find a foster that can do the behavior modifications or rehabilitations that it needs. During the COVID crisis, one of two things happened here. One is that a lot more people had time to go and adopt dogs. But then they also had time to spend with their dogs and realize the behavior problems that they had that they've just been ignoring or creating away when they were home. So because we have limited room here and our goal really is to keep dogs in the homes, it has allowed us to reach out to other rescues for people who are looking to adopt. Most of the families are who's reaching out to us. And a lot of these dogs that I bring in, they aren't ready for family yet, or they will never be a family dog. They have to be a working dog. We go everything from pet to military and law enforcement, search and rescue, everything in between. But because we have really very limited dogs that are ready to just go in a family, it's allowed us to help other rescues home dogs at a bigger rate because we have so many more families that are reaching out and these rescues have family dogs or puppies that are ready to go into a family and learn how to be a house dog and a a member. But it also has allowed us or brought us, I should say, a lot more home visits for some behavior modifications and assistance in helping people keep these newly acquired dogs in their homes rather than get dumped back at a shelter or rehomed somewhere else. Every time a dog gets returned, a little piece of them is missing. So we really try to keep them in their original or in their first adopted homes if we can. That's really wonderful to hear. Just because the the message to families out there who think, oh, I got to give up on my dog or this just isn't the right dog for us anymore. I can't give it what it needs. Yes, you can. Yes. It's just about finding the formula and the proper combination of support in training, education, schedule, exercise. There's a bunch of things we can always do to not give up on our dog. 
There is. And the biggest thing is almost every time I get a call that somebody's looking to rehome their dog, they said, we have tried absolutely everything. There is no such thing as absolutely everything. There's always something else that you can tweak that you can try. Absolutely everything means that you talk to the neighbor or you talk to the local animal behaviorist who is not set up for this breed or who has not had experience with this, or you've looked on ABC and this is how it says it is that every dog will work that way. Every dog doesn't work that way. Just as people don't learn the same way, you have to be flexible and you also have to know the breed. So yeah, the I've tried everything just is not realistic. I, I've I've had th- literally thousands of dogs, probably close to 3,000 dogs through my hands in the last 15 or 20 years. Over a thousand of them have come through my home. We just took in our number 1,028 and that's what I can remember because wow. a few years into it, I started keeping track and then I had to go back and try to remember the names of all the ones that had come before that. So that's just in tracking and that's not counting the probably 30 plus that were keepers that were bred for it, you know, Kramer kids or my working dogs. Those weren't counted as fosters unless they started out fosters and ended up in our program. So I think that trying everything means that you have to look at as many different trainers and as many different techniques um, and talk to trainers that are knowledgeable in the specific dog you have in your hand. Yes, there's always resources. And I can't reiterate enough the idea that today with social media, with just an internet search, we can find and we should interview and do our research and do our homework, not just go for the first one that comes up on the list when you do a search. But if you look, it will be found. (laughs) It will, but you have to be very careful too, because there's some awesome information on the internet. There's also some horrific information on the internet. Right. There are still trainers out there who were te- who are teaching you how to choke your dog out and hang them and improper use of different tools. So it, it can be a curse as well as a blessing. Yes. And don't you think, I mean, when you're in a situation where you're looking for someone, I really believe in trusting your gut. And I feel like if you see something with a trainer or you get a sense of their energy or their vibe and it's just not vibing with you, that's probably not the person for you. Really listen to your gut instinct. Even if 10 other people are like, this guy's amazing. This woman is the best trainer, but maybe she's not the one for you. And I really try to listen to that because I have to get along and understand and communicate well with the trainer or he can't or she can't pass along to me what I have to keep doing with my own dog. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I'll, I'll use one point. In fact, I watched a video of a guy who was teaching. I don't know if you've seen the new bonker training method No. where they, where they wrap up a a roll of towels and they hit the dog over the head for everything. Um, And I watched dogs just any, he'll hit him for nothing just to show them what that feels like. Um, So I watched this seminar, people paid to bring their dogs to this seminar and one after the other, after the other kept bringing their and watching these dogs get fearful and shut down and get hit. And now they're hiding behind the trainer. They now won't go to their owners. And one after another, after another, they kept standing up. You could see people cringing in the audience and then stand up and hand their dog to this man to get hit. Oh no. Oh no. So that mindset, you know, the first bonk he did, I had my dog out the door. I don't care what I paid for the seminar. Of course. So you really do have to, when you say stick to your gut and, and follow your gut, it is an absolute, that, that sense is there for a reason. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Before we wrap it up, I, I do have a few more questions. I don't want to lose you yet. This is too good. <laughs> I'm learning so much. I just, you know, I love it. So let me just, for our listeners who haven't known about the Kramer Foundation or are just hearing about the Kramer Foundation for the first time, in 2016, the foundation was on the verge of closing. Uh, the facility was not able to sustain harsh weather conditions. It wasn't suited to safely keep the 35 to 50 dogs that you had at any one time. So things turned around in the last couple of years. Can you share with us how the Kramer Foundation was saved and why it is so important to continue to advocate for communities to support programs like yours? I can tell you that I think probably Kramer was my biggest push for that, uh, my biggest advocate, because through him, we had made such connection to the community. I mean, literally, we were in schools and libraries and senior homes and counseling agencies. We did interviews with the police departments for young abuse victims um, who would talk to nobody but the dogs. We went to families' funerals. We went to graduations. We went, I mean, we were embedded in the community. So there was a huge support to begin with. So when we announced this, and the TV station kind of got a hold of it. People called and they did a, a story on that. And and the, as they interviewed people, they said, you know, this can't happen. This just can't happen. And it became a grassroots. We didn't qualify for a lot of the great big grants and stuff that would have allowed us to have this up in a year or two. This was three years of bake sales and raffle tickets and spaghetti dinners and chicken and biscuit dinners. And by the grace of God, we we came in contact with the Community Foundation, who has been an absolute savior for us. There's a couple of local organizations here that we've gotten grants through, some nice grants, but ultimately it was the community who continues to this day. I mean, the building is up. We still have some st uh, stuff to do, but I've got a 50 by 100 30 kennel, radiant floor heating with with fans, overhead fans and covered outdoor pens and fenced fields for the dogs to run. And we're working now on what was the existing building, which was 24 by 40. Oh, what a difference. This is great. Yes. Yeah. Which, which will now be a training building. So I don't have to now carry scent boxes somewhere and set them up and come back and put crates in and carry dogs down to training and then back and forth doing different dogs and then come back down at the end of the day and pick all my training equipment up and bring that back home. Everything will be right there on site. And so when I take my dogs out, it will be for very specific training for uh, obedience classes so that they can be socialized in class the way that they should be. And uh, whoo, boy, for the first time in 20 years, I'm not hand walking dogs the last two years, I the building was up, but the outside pens weren't done. So I still was literally hand walking 40 dogs every day. Wow. Yeah. And then snowy winters, because I know what it's like up there. So. Oh, yeah. Everybody's in one place with heat and running water. And it is just like a whole different world. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I, I hope to visit you guys again. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Let me ask you, what advice do you give to anyone who has adopted a dog or is looking to adopt their first dog? Especially adopting a dog or coming out of rescue, you can't love the hurt out of them without boundaries. You can't just bring a dog home, turn them loose in a house, and, and think that regardless of what their past is, that they're just going to adjust 
they're just because you love them, they're just going to fit right in and that you can just love them and hold them and the whole world will go away and they'll be perfect. You have to give them time. So many people within a day to a week uh, give up on a dog and say he's not going to fit because you've just brought him in, set him down. It's like turning a teenager loose in New York City and saying, find your way and think that everybody's <laughs> going to get along and they're always going to make the right choices. Give it time. They need time to adjust. You have to have boundaries right away. How you bring them into your house day one is how you are going to live for the rest of their life there. So make it count. Hear that, people? Make it count. Julie, what does the love of your dogs mean to you? Oh, boy. Sanity. Peace. It's a it's a world that I can leave the rest of the craziness behind. They're there no matter what. And, and not only what they give me, but what they allow me to give or how I, they allow me to reach others in need is, is just, oh, boy, you just can't even describe it. You just can't even describe it. But at the end of the day, it's me and the dogs and the world goes away. I hear that. I can relate. Okay. And if you could hear an episode on this podcast on any topic related to dogs, what would you like to hear more about? Actually, uh, what we just discussed in, in how to introduce your dog successfully to your house, the time given, the steps taken to make it successful. Right now, we are thankfully... We've got dogs right now in 29 states and three countries, and we have a less than 1% return rate. And that's usually because a, I'm going to tell you that the return almost always has come for the few that have been returned, came from a working home or an agency who tried to manipulate the dog into how they train instead of going with the successes that they had, which is why the dog was placed with them. So I would really really like to have people emphasize the need for proper introduction boundaries and how to incorporate a dog into your home, not putting the human emotion into, we can love it all the way and it'll be, they'll be fine. Gotcha. Yeah. That's something to think about. And I will definitely pursue getting that topic on this podcast and may have you back as a guest, if you don't mind, to enlighten us with more of that knowledge and direction for dogs and people. Oh, you know I'm always happy to talk to you, Jackie. Okay. So if people want to get in touch or help the Kramer Foundation in any way, where do we send them? We've got a Facebook, the Kramer Foundation, or we have thekramerfoundation.org is our website there. Email is kramerfoundation at aol.com. Yes, some of us still use AOL. I'm simple. You know, Jackie, technology is not my thing. I'd rather face a rabid dog. <laughs> oh, you crack me up. So our listeners should know also that I am not getting paid to advocate for any organization on this podcast. I choose organizations that I know are doing the good work for dogs and people across America. Kramer Foundation has the canine condition seal of approval from me. Julie, thank you for hanging out with us virtually today. Congratulations on the new facility. We wish you many more years of success stories. You are welcome to come back to the podcast anytime and share more stories with us. Jackie, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate what you're doing on there, bringing light to the plight of our homeless and, and abandoned dogs and rescues and uh, shelters. The, the predicament they're in right now is just incredible. So I hope this reaches a lot, a lot, a lot of people. So do I. Thank you. And if any of our listeners out there would like to see and hear more about the Kramer Foundation, please check out our YouTube channel or website at the K 
canine condition to see the newly released documentary footage at the Kramer Foundation. I hope you will join me in my next episode as I virtually hop on to New Jersey and visit with a rescue organization there named Sammy's Hope. Until next time, hang on to those leashes. The canine condition. Come, sit, stay. <laughs>